Chapter One, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Return of Democracy, Part Two. Quote from Mr. Blaine. In my amendment, I have accepted Jefferson Davis from amnesty. I do not place his exclusion on the ground that Mr. Davis was, as he has been commonly called, the head and front of the rebellion, because on that ground I do not think the exception would be tenable mr davis was in that respect as guilty no more so no less so than thousands of others who have already received the benefit and grace of amnesty probably he was far less efficient as an enemy of the united states probably he was far more useful as a disturber of the councils of the confederacy than many who have already received amnesty it is not because of any particular and special damage that he above others did to the union or because he was personally or especially of consequence that i accept him but i accept him on this ground that he was the author knowingly deliberately guiltily and wilfully of the gigantic murders and crimes at andersonville mr blaine then proceeded to describe in vivid language the sufferings of the union soldiers confined in the prison pen at andersonville he dwelt with all the power of a consummate orator upon the horrors of that loathsome place he pictured the miseries of starvation and disease the insults and ingenious cruelty of the jailer Vers, and he stirred the indignation of his northern hearers by painting the dreadful man-hunts in which savage bloodhounds had been set upon the track of escaping prisoners he accepted from his condemnation the people of the south and directly charged the crimes of andersonville upon jefferson davis the poor victim Vers deserved his death for brutal treatment and the murder of many victims but it was a weak policy on the part of our government to allow jefferson davis to go at large and hang Vers. Vers was nothing in the world but a mere subordinate and there was no special reason for singling him out for death i do not say he did not deserve it he deserved no mercy but his execution seemed like skipping over the president superintendent and board of directors in the case of a great railroad accident and hanging the brakeman of the rear car it is often said that we shall lift mr davis again into great consequence by refusing him amnesty this is not for me to consider i only see before me when his name is presented a man who by a wave of his hand by a nod of his head could have put an end to the atrocious cruelties at andersonville some of us had kinsmen there most of us had friends there all of us had countrymen there in the name of those kinsmen friends and countrymen i here protest and shall with my vote protest against calling back and crowning with the honours of full american citizenship the man who organised that murder mr hill of georgia replied to mr blaine in a very able temperate and as one reads it over now convincing speech so far as the complicity of mr davis was concerned but he and his associates from the south made the serious tactical mistake of charging that confederate prisoners had been ill-treated in the north this gave mr blaine another chance and amid a scene of indescribable excitement he returned to the attack as brilliant and even more exasperating than before the debate continued for several days during which the house at times became a bear garden but through all the tumult mr blaine was the one conspicuous figure the whole country was stirred as it had not been for many years the passions of the war revived and flamed up as fiercely as in the early sixties the name of blaine of maine was in all men's mouths and the north gloried in his victory which was the victory of a partisan but which was nevertheless magnificent 
the feeling of his admirers was well expressed a few weeks later by colonel robert ingersoll note eight page twenty who with florid yet effective eloquence paid this tribute to his leader like an armed warrior like a plumed knight james g blaine marched down the halls of the american congress and threw his shining lance full and fair against the brazen forehead of every traitor to his country from the moment of this spectacular exhibition mr blaine was an inevitable candidate for the presidency but the fierce white light which beats upon a throne is no more fierce than that which beats upon a presidential aspirant it was turned at once upon mr blaine's whole past career every incident and every act of his were now subjected to minute investigation by his enemies and rivals it was not long before a cloud was cast upon his personal integrity like a dank mist which rises at nightfall over marshy ground there rose a vague impalpable belief that in his public life he had not had a due regard for his own honour beginning with mere hints and ending with public accusations a dozen stories grew until they filled the minds of every one about him it was said that mr blaine had pledged a number of worthless railroad bonds to the union pacific railway company in return for a loan of sixty four thousand dollars which had never been repaid it was also charged that without consideration he had received bonds of the little rock and forsmith railroad still another rumour said that while the speaker of the house he had left the chair and asked one of the members to make a point of order which would be sustained by him and which would be favourable to a railway company in which mr blaine was interested among a very few it began to be whispered confidentially that there existed letters written by mr blaine to a business associate which if found would prove that the ex-speaker had had corrupt transactions with the northern pacific company these reports obtained so widespread a currency that mr blaine was forced to rise in his place and bring the matter to the attention of the house he read a letter from the treasurer of the union pacific and from colonel thomas a scott the president of that railway denying the story of the worthless bonds he read another letter from morton bliss and company who were alleged to have cashed the draft for sixty four thousand dollars mentioned in the story but who now declared that no such draft had been presented to them mr blaine went on to say that he had never owned the little rock and forthsmith bonds which he was said to have received without any consideration apparently his name was cleared he was of course extremely anxious to avoid investigation at the hands of congress the time for the national republican convention was drawing near many states had already instructed their delegates to support his candidacy that he should be the subject of an investigation for corrupt transactions while his name was before the convention would be fatal to his chances and he desired above all things to stave it off nevertheless the house which was strongly democratic ordered its judiciary committee to make such an investigation though in the resolution ordering it mr blaine was not specifically named this was on may second and at the first sessions of the committee the evidence was corroborative of mr blaine's assertions on may thirty first however a very curious incident occurred there was brought before the committee a man named james mulligan mulligan had at one time been a clerk for mr jacob stanwood the brother of mrs blaine and later a bookkeeper for warren fisher jr a business man of boston who had had close relations with the management of the little rock and forthsmith railroad while mr mulligan was testifying he chanced to mention very quietly that he had in his possession certain letters written by mr blaine to warren fisher jr at once it was observed that mr blaine grew pale and gave every evidence of great excitement 
a moment later in a whisper he asked a friend on the committee to move an immediate adjournment the gentleman in question did so on the plea of illness and the committee rose to meet again the following morning when it so met it listened to a most extraordinary story during the brief respite given by the adjournment of the committee mr blaine had flashed his mind over all the possibilities of the situation he knew that mulligan had letters which if made public by mulligan himself would be interpreted by every one in a sense extremely unfavourable to mr blaine he knew that these letters would surely be asked for by the committee so soon as it should reconvene in the morning to prevent this and to gain time he must act at once he therefore went to the riggs house where mulligan was staying and met mulligan fisher and one atkins in a private room there he first asked to see the letters which mulligan had with him when this request was refused he pleaded with all the earnestness of a man whose future was at stake that the letters might not be given to the committee mulligan declined to surrender them he said that he had no wish to injure mr blaine but that he must keep the letters in order to protect himself in case his testimony were impeached mr blaine asked to read the letters promising on his word of honour to return them after reading mulligan then handed the letters to mr blaine who read them very carefully put them into his pocket and carried them away with him such was the story which mulligan under oath told to the committee when it met on the following morning note nine page twenty three and twenty four meanwhile mr blaine had secured advice from eminent counsel senator matthew h carpenter and judge jeremiah black to the effect that he was not bound to return the letters he therefore refused to do so at the request of the committee and the matter for the moment rested there the case however looked very black for mr blaine he had possession of the letters to be sure yet his conduct was everywhere interpreted as giving evidence of guilt great excitement prevailed throughout the country and the friends of mr blaine were everywhere dismayed it soon appeared however that what he had done was only part of a well-conceived plan which did credit to his resourcefulness and audacity on june fifth mr blaine rose in the house and claimed the floor on a question of privilege he at once proceeded to recite the events which had led up to the incident just narrated and then referring to mulligan he spoke as follows this man had selected out of correspondence running over a great many years letters which he thought would be peculiarly damaging to me he came here loaded with them he came here for a sensation he came here primed he came here on that particular errand i was advised of it and i obtained those letters under circumstances which have been notoriously scattered throughout the united states and are known to everybody i claim i have the entire right to those letters not only by natural right but upon all the precedents and principles of law as the man who held those letters in possession held them wrongfully the committee that attempted to take those letters from that man for use against me proceeded wrongfully they proceeded in all boldness to a most defiant violation of the ordinary private and personal rights which belong to every american citizen then there went forth everywhere the idea and impression that because i would not permit that man or any man whom i could prevent from holding as a menace over my head my private correspondence there must be something in it most deadly and destructive to my reputation now mr speaker i say that i have defied the power of the house to compel me to produce those letters i speak with all respect to this house i know its powers and i trust that i respect them but i say this house has no more power to order what shall be done or not done with my private correspondence than it has with what i shall do in the nurture and education of my children not a particle 
the right is as sacred in the one case as it is in the other i am ready for any extremity of contest or conflict in behalf of so sacred a right throughout this animated and even fiery justification of his right the crowded house had listened in breathless silence and with a tension of feeling which could almost be felt there was abundant sympathy with mr blaine even his adversaries were sorry for him he seemed like a man driven into a corner and fighting for his very life yet the suppression of the letters looked only the more utterly damning but at this moment after a brief pause mr blaine dealt a master stroke which he had planned with consummate art and which he now delivered with a dramatic power that was thrilling raising his voice and holding up a packet he went on and while i am so i am not afraid to show the letters thank god almighty i am not afraid to show them there they are there is the very original package and with some sense of humiliation with a mortification that i do not pretend to conceal with a sense of outrage which i think any man in my position would feel i invite the confidence of forty-four millions of my countrymen while i read those letters from this desk the tension was broken the whole assembly burst out into frantic and prolonged applause then mr blaine read the letters one by one with comments and explanations of his own having done so he faced one of the democratic members of the committee mr proctor knott and in the course of a rapid dialogue brought out the fact that mr knott had received a cablegram from a mr caldwell whose knowledge of the whole affair was very intimate and that mr knott had apparently suppressed it the scene at the end of this exciting parliamentary duel baffled all description the house went mad and for fifteen minutes there reigned a pandemonium amid which the speaker was helpless in his efforts to restore even a semblance of order mr blaine for the moment had won a brilliant triumph he had restored and strengthened the faith of all his followers and had turned apparently inevitable disaster into victory he had not however played the ghost of the railway scandals reading over the so-called mulligan letters in cold type a great number of mr blaine's own party associates found in them evidence if not of actual corruption at least of so blunted a sense of official propriety as to make mr blaine no longer seem a fitting candidate for the highest office in the land from that time he had to face not only the opposition of the democratic party but the mistrust of thousands of republicans among whom were men of the highest character and influence the mulligan letters showed that mr blaine in the years when they were written had been suffering from what he called very pressing and painful pecuniary embarrassment writing to mr fisher he described himself as left helpless and hopeless and as crippled and deranged in all my finances a complicated series of financial transactions stood revealed and also a willingness on the part of mr blaine to secure especial consideration on the ground of his influence as an officer of the government the following letters are the two which were afterwards most often quoted the first was dated june twenty ninth eighteen sixty nine my dear mr fisher your offer to admit me to a participation in the new railway enterprise is in every respect as generous as i could expect or desire i thank you very sincerely for it and in this connection i wish to make a suggestion of a somewhat selfish character it is this you spoke of mr caldwell disposing of a share of his interest to me if he really designs to do so i wish he would make the proposition definite so that i could know just what to depend on perhaps if he waits till the full development of the enterprise he might grow reluctant to part with the shares and i do not by this mean any distrust of him 
i do not feel that i shall prove a dead head in the enterprise if i once embark in it i see various channels in which i know i can be useful very hastily and sincerely your friend j g blaine the second letter was marked confidential and was dated at washington april sixteenth eighteen seventy six my dear mr fisher you can do me a very great favour and i know it will give you pleasure to do so just as i would do for you under similar circumstances certain persons and papers are trying to throw mud at me to injure my candidacy before the cincinnati convention and you may observe they are trying it in connection with the little rock and fort smith matter i want you to send me a letter such as the enclosed draft you will receive this to-morrow monday evening and it will be a favour i shall never forget if you will at once write me the letter and mail it the same evening the letter is strictly true and is honourable to you and to me and will stop the mouths of slanderers at once regard this letter as strictly confidential do not show it to any one the draft is in the hands of my clerk who is as trustworthy as any man can be if you can't get the letter written in season for the nine o'clock mail to new york please be sure to mail it during the night so that it will start first mail tuesday morning but if possible i pray you to get it in the nine o'clock mail monday evening kind regards to mrs fisher sincerely burn this letter j g b a third letter dated october fourth eighteen sixty nine made it evident that mr blaine while speaker of the house had sent his page to general logan suggesting a point of order which if made would block a scheme unfriendly to a land grant in which mr blaine's financial associates were interested such in brief is the history of the famous mulligan letters which sufficed to prevent mr blaine's nomination for the presidency in eighteen seventy six and eighteen eighty and which now in eighteen eighty four from the outset of his candidacy were printed and scattered broadcast over the country by his political opponents note ten page twenty eight the democratic candidate against whom mr blaine had now to make his fight was a man of a wholly antithetical type mr cleveland was in no respect a brilliant man the son of a clergyman and early left to make his own way in the world he had like his rival been a teacher and had later taken up the practice of the law in buffalo there he had held some minor public offices in eighteen sixty three he was assistant district attorney for the county and from eighteen seventy to eighteen seventy three he had served as sheriff he first attracted attention outside of his own city when in eighteen eighty one he was elected mayor of buffalo by a combination of democrats and independents in this office he instituted reforms and defeated various corrupt combinations while his liberal use of the veto power maintained a wise economy in eighteen eighty two he had received the democratic nomination for the governorship of new york and had been elected by the remarkable plurality of one hundred ninety two thousand votes note eleven page twenty nine mr cleveland was a type of man such as had not before come to the front as a presidential possibility he represented the practical everyday usual citizen of moderate means and no very marked ambitions the combination of the business man and the unimportant professional person blunt hard-headed brusque and unimaginative and with a readiness to take a hand in whatever might be going on his education was of the simplest his general information presumably not very large and his interest in life was almost wholly bounded by the limits of his own locality as a practising lawyer he was well thought of yet his reputation had not gone much beyond the local circuit a bachelor he had no need of a large income his spare time was spent with companions of his own tastes 
his ideal of recreation was satisfied by a quiet game of pinochle in the back room of a respectable beer-garden and perhaps this circumstance in itself is sufficient to give a fair notion of his general environment he was indeed emphatically a man's man homo inter homines careless of mere forms blunt of speech and somewhat primitive in his tastes but he had all the virile attributes of a puritan ancestry his will was inflexible his force of character was extraordinary he hated shams believed that a thing was either right or wrong and when he had made up his mind to any course of action he carried it through without so much as a moment's wavering so great was the confidence which his character inspired that when a committee of the independent voters of buffalo called upon him for the purpose of urging him to stand for the mayoralty they asked him for no written pledges but accepted his simple statement as an adequate guarantee cleveland says that if elected he will do so and so they told the people and the people elected him because they knew his word to be inviolable as governor mr cleveland entered upon a wider field and one that must have seemed at first a place of limitless exactions but his lack of imagination stood him in good stead he bent his back to the burden and did each day's work as it came a stranger to large responsibilities and retaining much of the narrowness of the provincial business man he viewed all questions as equally important attending personally to all his correspondence looking for himself into every item and detail of executive business and giving hours of time each day to minutiae which the merest clerk could have cared for with quite as much efficiency this however was only one manifestation of the conscientiousness that showed itself far more commendably in higher matters the rough blunt independence of the man made him indifferent to the insidious influences that rise like a malarial mist about the possessor of high political office subtleties of suggestion were lost on this brusque novice and anything more pointed than suggestion roused in him a cross-grained spirit that brooked no guidance or control he forged ahead in his own way with a sort of bull-necked stubbornness but with a power and energy which smoother politicians were compelled to recognize as very real he cared nothing for popularity he vetoed a bill requiring the street railways to reduce their fares thereby offending thousands he followed it up by a veto of another bill which granted public money to sectarian schools and in consequence he estranged great masses of his catholic supporters he defied the tammany leaders in the legislature and made still more powerful enemies but when the people at large had come to understand him they admired his independence and applauded this burly obstinate tactless but intensely earnest man they were pleased when the professional politicians were trampled on and even the labor representatives to whose dictation mr cleveland had sturdily refused to bow at heart respected him for his firmness and his honesty in the end his record as governor of new york secured for him the nomination for the presidency against the brilliant subtle and magnetic blaine was pitted the plodding incorruptible courageous cleveland the campaign opened immediately after the two candidates had been nominated those republicans who were opposed to mr blaine formed an organization at a conference held in new york on july twenty second and prepared an address which was issued on the thirtieth by the so-called national committee of republicans and independents of which george william curtis was the chairman and george walton green the secretary at once the movement assumed formidable proportions and it was seen that thousands of republicans were rallying to cleveland not because they had given up their party but because they could not tolerate their party's candidate 
among them were men who had been identified with the republican party from its earliest years henry ward beecher william everett george dickner curtis carl Schurz, and james freeman clark these independents received the popular name of mugwumps a word which having been first employed in a semi-political sense by the indianapolis sentinel in eighteen seventy two gained its popular currency through the new york sun which began using it on march twenty third eighteen eighty four these mugwumps or political purists had been described by mr blaine four years earlier in a letter to general garfield in which he said they are noisy but not numerous pharisaical but not practical ambitious but not wise pretentious but not powerful this sentence was extremely characteristic of the man who wrote it mr blaine was an old campaigner he knew that his record would be violently assailed he felt however that he had drawn all the enemy's fire in eighteen seventy six and eighteen eighty and that in consequence their ammunition had been practically exhausted he had no intention of conducting a defensive battle with all his natural aggressiveness therefore he began to carry the war into the enemy's country at first he trusted to the old sectional issue which had won so many elections for his party the memories of the civil war were again invoked the perils of the solid south and of the south once more in the saddle were pictured by a thousand party orators but somehow or other this issue had in sporting parlance gone stale the new generation which had grown up since the war cared little for these things and the older generation had grown weary of them mr cleveland was sneered at because he had not enlisted in the army but had sent a substitute to this it was answered that he was then the sole support of a widowed mother and that neither had mr blaine himself enlisted nor sent a substitute a feeling of dismay affected the republican managers when it was discovered that the war issue was no longer powerful the tariff question was then taken up and hammered at industriously this had proved sufficient to pull mr garfield through in eighteen eighty and much was hoped from it by mr blaine the democratic platform however had been very wisely drawn and its tariff plank decidedly appealed to the common sense of the american people it said knowing full well that legislation affecting the occupations of the people should be cautious and conservative in method not in advance of public opinion but responsive to its demands the democratic party is pledged to revise the tariff in a spirit of fairness to all interests but in making reductions in taxes it is not proposed to injure any domestic industries but rather to promote their healthy growth the necessary reduction in taxation can and must be effected without depriving american labor of the ability to compete successfully with foreign labor and without imposing lower rates of duty than will be ample to cover any increased cost of production which may exist in consequence of the higher rate of wages prevailing in this country sufficient revenue to pay all the expenses of the federal government can be got under our present system of taxation from custom-house taxes on fewer imported articles bearing heaviest on articles of luxury and bearing lightest on articles of necessity End of chapter one part two